from ink-black darkness and bottomless emptiness came a light. And then another and another. This is the story of how it all started. All we see, all we don't see. But what or who was behind the nothingness turned something? Is there really a God to encounter? The light separated light from dark, water from sky. God saw that it was good, but it didn't end there. Human beings reflecting the very nature of God. So good, so very good. But more clever than any wild animal was the serpent. They took and ate and everything changed. If you have ever locked yourself out of your house, your car, your office, anybody besides me? Glad I'm not alone. You know, now it's even more complicated because you can lock yourself out of your computer. You can lock yourself out of websites where you have stored really important information. Anybody ever done that besides me? The way it works for me is I'll get on and I'll just put it in and then I'll get that little message back that says error you know, wrong password or whatever, and, and then I realize, okay, I just did it too fast, and I'll, I'll do it really slow and make sure I get all the different parts on it, and I'll hit return, I'll get that message back, error again. Then I go, well, maybe, it, maybe it's a different password. I thought it was that password. And then I'll think about another password that I frequently use, and I go, it's got to be that one, and I'll stick that in, and then, you know, heaven forbid you get the message that says you are temporarily locked out. Anybody got that one? And worse than that is see the administrator. <laughs> That's like having to go down to the principal's office, right? I mean, you really messed up. Well, um, I, I want you to imagine this. What would it be like to be locked out of God's presence and no password can get you back in? We're in this series called Encounter where we are talking about how to encounter God and how to dwell in his presence, to live in his presence. Because I'm convinced a lot of us don't. A lot of us don't. And last weekend, we started out the series with this question. The question was, is there even a God to encounter? We answered that question. And if you were not here, I encourage you to check out the website where we talked about that. I think you'll find it fascinating. This weekend, I want to ask a different question. And that is simply, how did we get locked out of God's presence in the first place? How did we get locked out of God's presence in the first place? In order to do that, we're going to take a sweeping view of the theology of the Bible. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to use my, my board, and I'm going to encourage you to draw with me. And I'm going to be borrowing a little bit from a wonderful uh, group called the Bible Project, uh, they have made the Bible visual in a powerful way. They've done a great job with it. Some of what I say may sound a little familiar, although I do feel they, they ripped off my board and didn't ask my permission, but that's okay. They do a much better job than me. Just kidding. It's a great, great program. Look it up, the Bible Project. But um, we're going to kind of, we're going to work this through, and I think you'll, I think you'll be helped and fascinated by it. I think the the story will stick with you in a deeper way. So let's, let's start with the first chapter of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. It says there, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless 
and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So we use purple Vikings color. <clears throat> uh, why don't you just draw, uh, just uh, write out the, the name God somewhere on your uh, paper or your whatever notes you're using. Just write out the name God. And uh, we know from the Bible, we talked a little about this last weekend, that God is immaterial. That God is not bound by space-time reality. That God is not matter and energy. God has always been. So I kind of cloud it up just a little bit, get this sense of mystery, you know, the God who has always been. But at some point in time, in the history, God did something very unique. He created. So if you want to make an arrow and just use a, uh, draw the word, I should say draw, write the word created. God created all that we know, this universe. And uh, while God made a lot of parts to this universe, one particular sphere that he made was called the earth. And the earth, as far as we know so far, was set apart from any other kind of sphere that God made in that it could support life. Plant life and animal life. But in particular, God created two what, he, what we call human beings. Right? And the first one, out of the dust of the ground, his name was Adam. Then out of Adam, God created the woman. I'll give her hair so you recognize her. All right? And we know them as Adam and Eve. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it's a very interesting verse. It says, so God created human beings in his own what? Image. In the what? Image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So if you are, are doing this with me, just write the word image off to the side someplace in your notes. The question is, well, what does that mean to be created in God's image? Michael Heiser, who's a PhD believer, uh, expert on Semitic languages, says, if you want to understand what image means, add an R to the end of it. You get imager. So Adam and Eve are imagers of God. What does that mean? Well, Heiser goes on, he says, it means that God created them to reflect his character, to reflect his character in the world. God created them to carry out responsibilities. The responsibility was to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. We're going to talk more about this next weekend, but the garden was, was, was really a small part of, of the rest of the planet. The rest of the planet didn't, look like the garden, and their job and their children's 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 job was then to, in essence, subdue the entire planet to make the whole planet um, a garden. And by the way, God has not given up on that project. We'll talk more about that later on. So God puts them in the garden, and he gives them the opportunity to reflect his, his character, to be responsible. I want to add one more. Heiser doesn't. And that is that they were also created to worship God and to experience God. No other creature does that. Your dog, your cat, I was going to say your chimpanzee, but I doubt very many of you own one, all right? Uh, zebras, elephants, no creature worships God, sets up altars and worships God, only we do. Where did they come from? Why is it we feel this connection to God? <clears throat> or if, we're, if you're an atheist, why is there this thing about being against God? If God doesn't exist, why worry about it? Why worry about it? Where does that come from? And then God gave them uh, something else, and if you want to jot it down, God gave them choice, or if you want to put it another way, God gave to them freedom. Freedom. That's what makes us so unique. 
and the freedom was to obey or disobey him. Now, in the beginning, God was the one who defined what was good and evil. That knowledge rested with God. And God gives man the opportunity to leave that with God, or if man chooses to disobey God and take that to himself, which then would be to be like God, and so the consequences for it. God is looking for his creation to worship him and to obey him. And so God puts in the garden this amazing tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says to the man and to the woman, that tree is mine. That fruit is mine. You are never to take it. If you do, you will die. It will be an awful experience. So leave it to me. And I think it kind of illustrates the fact that in essence what God was saying is leave the issue of good and evil up to me. I've made you. I've made you. Beings with freedom, use that freedom to obey me. Don't use that freedom to go against me. And about that time, there's this creature in rebellion that shows up called the serpent. Now, how you interpret the serpent? Is it an illustration? Is it an example? Is it truly a serpent? Was it being used by, by the devil? Was it the devil? I, I'm not interested in that argument. What I'm interested in, though, is what the serpent represents, which is rebellion. He's trying to get God's creation in rebellion with him against God. Now, the serpent tells a very different story, a very different story about the tree. The serpent says, if you eat the fruit from that tree, you won't die, you will live. It's interesting how he approaches the woman. He approaches her, although Adam and the Hebrews standing right next to her. And he says, did God really say? If I asked you a question, if I, if I said, I'll pick up my wife, Marcia. Did Marcia really say, I put you in a position of judging Marcia? Because now you stand back and you go, okay, she did or she didn't, or I'm not sure. So when the serpent approaches, says, did God really say, it's like he's trying to get her to judge God. Anyway, he says, if you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. Well, in a sense, they already were like God. I'm not saying they were gods. I'm saying they were like God. In the fact that they were imagers of God. But he says, you will, you know, you'll in essence be like God. You'll be a God too. And he saw that the fruit was delightful, and she took it and gave it to her husband, and they both ate, and their eyes were opened, and we've all been in trouble ever since. Now, I want to take you to an important passage of Scripture in Genesis. So if you want to turn there, chapter 3, verse 23 through 24. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23 through 24. So the Lord God banished him, that is Adam and Eve, obviously, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's an entirely different message, the tree of life. We'll do it some other time. But here's the point. Man has been banished. Man's been sent out, sent away. How do Adam and Eve get back in? 
I mean, isn't that like the big question we've all been wrestling with throughout history? How do we get back in the garden? How do we get <clears throat> to a place where we're not de- dealing with evil and hatred and violence and all the stuff that we deal with in work, at school, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our families, in our relationships, and in this world? How do we get back in? Well, there are passwords you can try. And in fact, <clears throat> I found some passwords in this passage of Scripture. I'll put the first one up. Uh, they tried the password cover up one, exclamation mark. All right? I think about writing a book, The Passwords of the Bible. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I have a verse for you that, that shows the password. Uh, Genesis 3.7. It says, at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they f- sewed fig leaves together to what? Cover themselves. Cover up. So it's not their nakedness, by the way, that's evil. What their nakedness reveals is their guilt, their shame, and their fear of judgment. And we are always covering ourselves. If somebody approaches you and you sense there's hostility there, we automatically flinch, don't we? We automatically cover our our vulnerability. So it's this fear of our vulnerability before God. I feel, sh- I feel shame. I feel guilty. I, I fear what's going to happen to me because of what I have done. But God sees through the cover. In a lot of ways we cover up today. You know, one of the ways we cover up is, is people just try good works. It's like, I'm just going to try to be really good. And if I'm good enough, then God, then God will accept me. God will be okay with me and Hopefully my good deeds will, will counterbalance my bad deeds. So I'm more good than bad and I'll be acceptable before God. That's one cover-up. Another cover-up is comparison. Comparison. Hey, listen, I know, I'm not, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that guy. You ever done that? Or, you know, I'm not as bad as those students. I'm not as bad as that group. So because I'm better, therefore God must, God must certainly have some room for me. In other ways, rituals. You know, if I, if I do this ritual, if I go to church, if I give my offering, if I get baptized, if I take communion, if I wear a cross, whatever it is, that somehow that, that's a cover-up for my guilt, my shame, and the judgment I deserve, and God will accept me. Now, some rituals are very important if they're done out of a heartfelt need, like baptism. You know, folks who are baptized today, they're baptized because of, of a relationship with Christ. But just being baptized, just being put in the water and brought back out, doesn't make you more spiritual. Doesn't make you more spiritual. That's what happens to the heart. And God sees right through it because all our attempts, the Bible says, all our attempts on our own to cover up, God says, they're like filthy rags. It just doesn't, it doesn't work because God, God demands perfection, which takes us to a second password, if you want to jot it down, and that password is, I blame you too. All right? Now, this is where the message becomes participatory. So I need you to, I need you to help me out with this part. And there are parts to this. There's a men's part, a women's part, and then we all have a part. And it's scripture for the most part, all right? So the men, uh, let's do this one together, all right? It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit. All right, guys, you're sad, man. That's sad. I, are you afraid? All right? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Let's say it together. Ready? It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. So I'm not to blame. She's to blame. 
Therefore, I'm innocent. Now, do we see that happen in our culture today? Do we justify ourselves by blaming others, or does that not happen today? All right, ladies, here's your turn. Ready? So women, let's go. The serpent deceived me. Now, I wanted to actually add to that, but you're not supposed to add to Scripture. I, I thought, based on the fact that, that Adam was standing next to her, I thought it should, it should read, uh, the serpent deceived me, and he was standing next to me and didn't do a thing about it. Right. <laughs> If it was Mother's Day, I would have put that in, all right? All right, now, all of us together, God, all my faults are your faults. I've heard people say it. I've heard Christians say that in different ways. God, you you know, you allowed this. You made me this way. You did this. So ultimately, the blame rests with you. The blame rests with you. You know, at some point, I think Adam and Eve realized what they had done and how it was now breaking their intimacy with God and separating them from his presence, bringing all the pain and suffering that humanity has suffered ever since because they, because they disobeyed God. But you know, God knew what they would do because God knows all things. Don't confuse that with thinking that God wired them and planned for them to do it. Because God didn't. Gave them the gift, and that was the consequences of the gift. But it wasn't God's intention that they would actually do that. But God knew that they wouldn't go, so God had a plan. And I want us to look at that plan, and thank God he had a plan. And I want you to take your Bibles now, and I want you to turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at verse 14 through 15. All right? And see what God's plan is. So Genesis 3, 14. He says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, God's talking to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, that's a veiled reference there. It's, it's a mystery. And, and those who would have heard that, like Eve and, and generations afterwards, would have had no clue what was necessarily meant by that, other than the fact that the woman, somewhere along the line, is going to have a descendant. She thought maybe it was Seth. To read the chapters after chapter 3. But somewhere along the line, there's going to be this descendant who's going to somehow rescue everybody. And have this conflict with the, the serpent and what the serpent stood for. But nobody really knew. And nobody really understood that until after the resurrection, I'm convinced. It was a mystery. It was veiled from humanity. And I also believe it was veiled from, from the spiritual realm as well. God had his mystery. God had his plan that would be revealed in the right time. However, when you look at this passage of Scripture, what do you, what do you hear God saying? You hear God saying to the serpent, look, you, you think you won? But there's a descendant coming. He's going to crush your head. Oh, you're going to strike at him. And you're going to think you won again. But you're going to realize you've been defeated. You've been defeated. But it all comes at a cost. It all comes at a cost. A great cost. And there's allusions to that cost in the story. For instance, in verse 21. You know, you tend to just skip over a verse like this. It says... And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. 
Say, what's the, what's the cost? What's going on there? I want to be careful we don't read in too much. It's really a powerful illustration. That's how I want to look at it. But I wondered to myself, what was it like for Adam and Eve? And I don't know how it happened, whether angels did it or they did it. I don't know how it happened. But, but what was it like to see the animals that, that Adam had named, to see some of them actually killed, blood spilled, so that their skin, their hair, their fur could be used as a covering for their, for their nakedness, their guilt, their shame, that sense of self-protection. Isn't it interesting that God, in essence, said, fig leaves won't do, your own attempt to cover yourself won't do, I have to provide a covering for you, and it's going to require the blood of these animals? What is that a picture of? What's that illustrate? It illustrates the fact that it takes a, a blood sacrifice to cover our guilt, our shame, and our sins. And ultimately, who's the blood sacrifice? The Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Costly. There's another allusion to that cost. It's found over in Genesis chapter 4, and that's Cain and Abel's story, the children of Adam and Eve, two of their children. In that story, Cain is a gardener. Raises vegetables and fruit and things like that. And Abel is a herdsman. Raises animals. Somehow both, both guys knew that if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to make some kind of sacrifice. We're not told how they knew that, but somehow they knew that. They even outside the garden, if you want a connection with God, you, you have to offer a sacrifice for your sins. For your distance from God. So Abel brings the firstling of, of, his, of his herd. And he offers this precious animal, and God accepts the sacrifice. He says, oh, God sees that Abel gets it, that, that you need a blood covering. You need a life for your life. But Cain brings the best of his fruit and his vegetables, or he just brings fruit and vegetables, and he offers it to God, and God rejects his offering, and it makes Cain angry. And God says to Cain, read it in, in chapter 4, he says to him, Sin is crouching at your door, okay? Don't let it get the best of you. I'm paraphrasing there. Don't let it get a hold of you. Do what is right and you'll be accepted. But Cain gets angry about it. Doesn't want to do what is right. And that's where we pick up the story over in chapter 4 and verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother, Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Envy and jealousy. Wow. Where did that envy come from, by the way? It started, back, it started back here with the serpent who envied God in eternity past and then got the man and the woman to envy God and want to be God. Aren't you glad we don't struggle with envy anymore? We all do, right? We all, don't we all, aren't we all like our first parents, Adam and Eve? Don't we all want to be God? Be the God of our own life. And I don't know about you, but be the God of other people's lives, if, if other people let me be the God of their life, it would be a much better world. Right? Life would just go so much easier. The problem is nobody wants me to be God or you to be God. That's what we struggle with. So he kills his brother. Now, we look on in the passage. Look at what it says. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Man, that's brazen. That's bold. Say that to the creator, right? Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, that's, that's, that's a metaphor. It's not like Abel's blood is literally screaming like you can hear a voice. 
But God is saying, in essence, what's happened to Abel is like it's crying out to me for something. And I thought to myself, what's it crying out for? I thought I knew and I wanted to make sure. And sure enough, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10, I was right. Look what it says there, talking about the martyrs in heaven. It says in verse 10, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Abel is crying out, God, you know, avenge me. Avenge the injustice done to me. The martyrs cry out, avenge the injustice done to us. Now, it's really important to remember that. You'll see why in just a couple minutes. But everything, as, as Dr. Uh, Tim Mackey says, everything just just spirals out of control until you get to chapter 6. It is so bad that when you get to chapter 6, I mean, the world has gone to hell. I mean, there is, everybody's in rebellion against God. Everybody's trying to be their own God. There's such evil taking place that it's only one guy who's still sacrificing, who's still connecting with God. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 says, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at that time, limited population, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Wow. So is Noah the rescuer? It seems like it. Because God calls to him and says, I want you to build this massive ark. I'm going to send in pairs of every kind of animal. You take your husband, you take your sons, their wives, get in that boat. And I'm sending a flood to cleanse the earth. I'm going to start all over again. And the flood comes and Noah and his family are spared. The flood dissipates in the ground. It's now dry land. He goes out of the ark and God speaks to him much like he spoke to Adam in Genesis chapter 9 verse 7. It says, now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. It's like, okay, start over again. Plant a garden and I want you to Rule the earth, and I want you and your offspring. Let's do it right this time. Oh, obey me this time. That's really important to understand because I want you to know that God, God still plans for this earth to become a garden. We'll talk more about that next weekend. But coming back to the passage of Scripture, so is Noah the rescuer? Well, Noah plants a garden, it's a vineyard, and then he gets drunk out of his mind. And a mysterious passage of Scripture tells us that, that Ham goes into the tent where his father is drunk and does something very shameful to his father. And Noah wakes up from his drunkenness and it says he wakes up and he's naked and, and he's ashamed. Well, when Adam and Eve took what didn't belong to them, their eyes are open, they realized they were naked and they weren't ashamed. So Noah's not the rescuer. Noah blew it. Maybe it's Abraham, right? Through you I will bless all the nations of the world. What a man, a man of faith. I admire Abraham, he's a friend of God. But Abraham's not the rescuer because Abraham's a liar. He has a hard time telling the truth and it ran through his whole family. And he's disobedient. He doesn't wait for God to give him a child through Sarah. Takes matters in his own hands. Even at his wife's suggestion that he do that. Remember, she turned around and then was angry at him for listening to her. <laughs> so he's not the rescuer. How about Jacob? Maybe Jacob is the rescuer. But Jacob's a liar and a deceiver. Terrible. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's Moses. Maybe Moses is the rescuer. But Moses has a horrible temper. He's a murderer. Well, maybe it's David. Well, David's a, a, a murderer, a, an adulterer, and a murderer. And every time you come across the Scripture, you say, there's a rescuer, there's a man, there's a woman, that person's a rescuer. 
they end up needing to be rescued themselves. Until you come to this person named who? Named Jesus. He's different. He is the rescuer. This is God's promise back here being fulfilled, I believe. Now think about Jesus to me for just a moment. Jesus shows up and he faces temptation. And yet when he faces temptation, he obeys rather than disobeys his father. In the garden, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be removed from me. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Paul tells us in Romans that Jesus is the second Adam. He's what Adam should have been, but wasn't. And you and I, as believers, we are in Christ, which in a sense means that that in, in a sense, we are like a second Adam. It's like we've been given a second chance. But it's in Christ, and, and who Christ is becomes our identity. In this generation, in this country, where we're so struggling with identity, it's because, it's because ultimately our identity can only be realized in God and experienced in God. But you have to come into relationship with God to know that. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies and his blood is shed. Abel's blood cried out, vengeance. What does Jesus' blood cry out? He says from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What a different cry, huh? What a different voice. I mean, if anybody had the right to cry out vengeance, it was the Son of God. But he cries out forgiveness. Jesus looks like he's been defeated as they bury him in the tomb. It looks like Satan has won. But on the third day, he's resurrected and stomps on death. Stomps on the enemy. Read your New Testament carefully. Read Romans especially. And if you read that, I think you'll agree that, in essence, what Jesus does is he comes and he applies his death and resurrection to you and me. And it says, so he looks at us. He stands in front of us. He looks at us. And he says, take the cover up off. Take the makeup off. Let's get down to who you really are. Forget about your rituals, your good works, your comparison, your jealousy, your envy, and all the stuff you've ever done wrong. Admit it. Just expose yourself and admit it to me. And I'm going to now clothe you in grace and in forgiveness and in mercy. And listen to this, you ready? And in perfection. Not imperfection, but in perfection. And I'm going to give you a standing that makes it look like you are back in the garden, you are Adam, you are Eve, and you said yes to God and no to the serpent. And I'll take all the evil and all the sin and shame and guilt and death in your life, I'm going to take it on myself. I'll become you so you, listen, you can actually one-up Adam. Man, this is good stuff. I, I didn't have this the last service, so thanks to the Holy Spirit, I guess. Listen, you shall be like God, remember? If you eat the fruit in Christ, I mean, can you be any more like God than to be in Christ? Than for, than for Christ to be in you. We get a better standing than Adam ever knew in the garden. I don't become a God. 
but God becomes himself in me. He builds his residency in me, which just takes us to a whole mystery of what does it mean someday that we'll be glorified in God's presence. That's exciting stuff. I almost sense chills up my spine. We'll talk a little bit more about that next weekend. And then it says, so Jesus comes to us and he says, you know what? Everything started in the garden. I actually want to start a garden in your heart. My kingdom. Where's the first place that God dwelt with mankind, humankind? Where was it? In a garden. Very good. And he wants to establish the garden now in our hearts. And then he invites us to go and he invites us to spiritually multiply and spiritually turn the rest of this world into a garden, so to speak. Because in the book of Revelation, someday when Christ returns, we are going to complete what was started way back in Genesis, and we will spend an eternity on the new earth in the garden with God the way he always intended it to be. Now, we started our story from the Bible with a tree. I want to end it with a tree. And the tree looks like, and it's called a what? A cross. Go back to freedom and a choice. You have a choice. You can take the path of obedience that leads to the cross. And I'm a horrible artist. I apologize, but imagine that's you kneeling and embrace the message of the cross. Or you can use freedom and bypass the cross and go find hope and fulfillment in what the world and the serpent offers to you. Many of you would say, oh, this is the choice I made. I came to the cross. I gave Jesus my heart. I praise God for that. But let me ask you a question. How often do you return? Aren't we supposed to return to the cross every day? Not to get saved again and again, but to take up our cross and follow him. Because being a true Christian, you know, it comes with some, some difficulties, some challenges. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Accept those challenges and follow me. Or are you here today and you've bypassed the cross? Man, you're looking for a cover in all the wrong places. And for some reason, the story makes sense today. And you're like, I want to do this right. I want, I, I want what he offers to me. I want this forgiveness. I want to be made whole. I, I want this, this standing that Christ can give to me. We would love to have a conversation with you about that. Rather than me saying, pray this quick little prayer with me. Because it involves really a heart change, a surrender. You can text the name Jesus into this number, 952-234-6300. And one of our pastors will contact you. And we'll just sit down and have coffee, whatever it is, and just, just really talk about this relationship with Christ. So if you're at that point, no matter how old, how young you are, let us know. Let's have that conversation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us. And thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be chosen by you and brought into relationship with you. Thank you for this powerful story of the Bible that describes our freedom. God, it does not get any better than what you've done for us. It just doesn't. Help us to stop taking what the world and the serpent offers us. It's killing us to accept what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you have time, stay in worship. Don't run out. Let's just take some time to worship God. Would you stand with me?